thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This week, the evolution of music technology. Take a listen to these two pieces of music. Here's the first one. And here's the second. Did you notice a difference? Well, believe me, there is one. And later in the programme, we'll reveal what it is when we examine how technology is evolving the world of music. Plus, the global response to climate change, the mystery of missing starlings, and how delightful really is that red sky at night. I'm Connie Orbach. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, representatives from more than 190 nations have been gathering in Paris to participate in the 21st Conference of the Parties, COP21. And at the top of the agenda is climate change. The aim is to pull together a binding political agreement that everyone signs up to and which will, they say, limit future global temperature increases. But what are the chances of this actually working? And what challenges are politicians going to face in trying to implement the sorts of strategies that will be necessary to keep a lid on climate? First, I went to speak with Cambridge University's Julian Huppett, who, as well as being a scientist, is also a former Member of Parliament who's campaigned previously on environmental issues. Well, what we have in Paris is the Conference of the Parties, all the the players from around the world, governments, non-governmental organisations, coming together to try to work out what the options are to limit carbon emissions, uh, to try to make sure that we don't see warming of more than two degrees. Um, It's a slightly arbitrary figure. We know that two degrees is harmful, um, but it now seems almost impossible to achieve no change at all. So two degrees, I guess, is bad, but not too bad. What is it actually going to take to do this? Is it even feasible? It's one thing getting people around a table. Are they actually going to achieve anything? I think if you look at the history of all of these, one has to be somewhat sceptical about the long-term achievement. Some of these conferences have been successful, uh, some less so. But I don't think there's an option to say we can't do it. Nobody has a, a better way of achieving global change than by getting global organisations uh, to work together. But it is hard to get people to work together on something like this. And there are a number of particular challenges for climate change. One is it's very hard to see it directly. People can't immediately see what's happening. It's a long-term programme. And it takes long-term action to achieve a solution. There's nothing that we can do that will fix things by tomorrow or undo the damage that's already been done. That makes it a really, really tricky political problem because it's all the things politicians wouldn't want. It's fairly intangible. It's very, very long-term. It's very hard to bring things back to where they want to be. And it relies a lot on people trusting things they can't actually see for themselves directly. It's outside the political cycle, isn't it? Because in Britain, we vote every five years. In Australia, every four years. 
the consequence of that is people are looking at short-term things that will win them the next election, not necessarily giving people uh, a hole in their pocket in order to look at something 100 years hence. Um, there's certainly an element of that. And um, politics is perhaps better than is sometimes portrayed at looking at longer-term uh, issues, but they tend to be things where people immediately are aware. So there has been some useful work outside the political cycle looking at the care system in the UK, for example, because it's not hard for people to understand that people are getting older, their parents, grandparents, neighbours, whatever it might be, will be getting older, will need help. The problem with climate change is that you can look out of your window and not really notice it. That doesn't mean it's not real, it really is there. But it's less obviously there, and that makes it harder for politicians to pick up. But it is also the fact that it's just a very, very long-term issue. Recently, we've seen the Premier in India saying, we are going to open a new coal-fired power station on roughly a monthly basis for many years to come. And uh, we're going to do that because we need to. At the same time, you guys, you've had your cake and eaten it. You develop countries, so if you've got a problem with what we're doing... You sort it out. How do we deal with that? I mean, it's a very frustrating attitude, but I can understand why. It, it, it certainly isn't right for us to say, look, we have all the power that we need. And frankly, people in the UK, uh, for example, getting power is not a challenge for most people. It's very hard to say to, to a country like India, no, I'm sorry, you, you can't do this. Um, I think part of the shame is that we haven't done enough early enough to provide really good alternatives. I don't think India would be interested in going ahead with coal fire power stations if we had really good solutions, you know, better solar panels, better wind turbines at an affordable price. One of the points that David Attenborough was making in Paris was we should get the scientists around the world who know how to deal with this problem, technologically speaking, together and just throw them at the problem and actually facilitate that interaction. So there is a, a tangible carbon-neutral solution to the energy crisis we face. I don't think it's as, as simple as that. The problem is working out how to actually make this happen, how to actually get the governmental buy-in to, to do things, because some of this will inve involve investment, how to get uh, community-based buy-in. If we're talking about getting people to, um, for example, save energy emissions by not travelling to work as often, a huge effect in the UK on congestion, on air pollution, as well as on carbon emissions, if people even could work from home on average one day a week. That involves much more um, community-based human change. And I don't think sort of a bunch of scientists in the stereotypical ivory tower saying, aha, we have the answer, is likely to get implemented. We, we are not really short of ideas on how to reduce energy usage. We're not really short of ideas on how to generate energy. The problems are about the economics, about the societal impact, about making it actually happen. Former MP and Cambridge University lecturer Julian Huppert. But according to the University of Oslo's Karen O'Brien, who's penned a paper this week in the journal Science on what's needed to avert climate change, an agreement by itself does not guarantee action and desirable outcomes, and current pledges are far from sufficient to limit warming to 2 degrees C, nor are new technologies and energy infrastructure. Meeting this ambitious target and adapting to the impacts and risks associated with a warmer world will require transformations of a scope, magnitude, speed and penetration that are unprecedented in human history. Without an instruction manual, where do we begin? Paris is um, a really important and exciting moment in history for getting people together on climate change. But I think that we're heading in the wrong direction because we're looking at climate change um, as if it's just a problem about CO2. The real problem is 
a human problem. It's a social problem. It's about development. It's about how we relate to ourselves and relate to each other and to the environment. Putting climate change in a separate environmental box actually misses all of these connections with economic changes and globalization, with social and cultural changes. And so by focusing just on carbon dioxide as the issue, um, and there's no doubt that that's important, we forget that it's really about our consumption and it's about how we've organized society. So what's it going to take then to turn this ship around? Because we always say climate change is a bit like an oil tanker steaming at very high speed in towards the shore. Even if you turn the engines off a mile offshore, it's still moving by the time the dock looms into view. Behind every ship, there's a small rudder called a trim tab. And when you push that in the opposite direction, it pushes the whole ship in the direction that you want to go. And those small trim tab moves, those little changes can actually have big changes. And for me, the real solutions to climate change are going to lie in humans, in people expressing their political agency and not just changing their behaviors, but actually challenging the way things are and starting to say, hey, I can make a difference. So have you got a sort of list of points that that you're making in in the paper you're publishing this week where you're saying, look, I think this is what needs to happen. This is the only way we're really going to solve this. We need the politicians. We need Paris. But at the same time, we need societal change in the following ways. And this is what I think is important. Well, the point I'm really making in the paper is that political agency matters. A lot of people point to individuals and say, oh, you know, walk to work, don't use plastic bags, don't eat meat and things. And that may be important also, but individuals have influence. They have influence in whatever arena they're active in and engaged in, and they can actually change things. Um, they can challenge systems and the structures that um, that are contributing my point really is is that we need a different type of understanding of political agency that's wider, that let, lets people feel like small changes that they make actually make a much wider difference, but also a deeper understanding of political agency where we start to really question all our assumptions that we have about our own power, our own possibilities um, for influencing the future. Karen O'Brien from the University of Oslo in Norway. And now... Continuing with the climate theme, Kat Arney has been keeping a weather eye on the sky for this week's Mythconception. You've probably heard the old saying, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Although in the US they substitute sailors for shepherds. But is it true? It's certainly old, as the phrase dates back to at least biblical times. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is quoted as saying, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. And many of us will probably have gazed at a glowing sunset and murmured the phrase, hoping for a nice day tomorrow, or woken up to a fiery sky and wondered where we put the umbrella. So what makes the sky turn red in the morning or evening? And does it really reflect the weather to follow? Red skies happen because of the way that molecules of gas and other particles in the atmosphere scatter light. When a beam of white sunlight hits the atmosphere, the shortest wavelengths, blues and purples, get bounced around more easily, pinging off tiny molecules of oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere. This is why the sky looks blue during the daytime, because the sun is directly overhead and the blue light is getting scattered all around the sky. But in the morning and in the evening, when the sun is low in the sky, the light takes a longer path through the atmosphere to get to us. 
Only the longer wavelength red and orange light get to our eyes on the ground, as the shorter wavelength blue light has already been scattered away. But, as any weather watcher knows, we don't get glorious glowing sunrises and sunsets every single day. And there are a few things that determine whether our shepherds or sailors will be happy or not on any given morning or evening. To see a red sky at night or a red sunrise, you need to be able to perceive the light from the sun from the ground. This is obviously easier if there aren't any clouds or if the clouds are high in the sky. And these high clouds or no clouds tend to be associated with good weather. But they can also be a forerunner of rain. So you might not notice if it rains during the night after a red sunset, but you'll notice if it tips it down during the day. Furthermore, high atmospheric pressure associated with good weather tends to trap small blue light scattering particles of dust and pollution. Because weather systems tend to travel from west to east, particularly around the kind of mid-latitudes of the globe like the UK, a red sky as the sun sets in the west means that high pressure and good weather is moving in from the west. But if it's already headed over to the east, illuminated by the rising sun, the weather system has moved on and it's on its way out, making way for wet and windy low pressure. But this isn't an absolute guarantee, as weather systems can move from south to north, which means that the prediction won't work. So next time you're staring at a romantic sunset, you can turn to your loved one and whisper, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, but only if the weather is right. Kat Arney will be back with more misconceptions next time. Meanwhile, if you know of a myth in the making that you'd like Kat to look into for you, drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Starlings are a type of bird. They're found all across the world and they're famous for murmurations. Now, you might have seen video footage where thousands of the birds flock together in this massive acrobatic routine. But in all seriousness, the numbers of starlings have nosedived and recently drowning has emerged as one mysterious cause of death among the species. Greg Jackson has been looking into the phenomenon. This is the song of a common starling. Starlings are found across the UK. You might recognise them, in fact. They look like they've been dipped in oil as their glossy black coats shimmer with metallic greens and blues and purples. And to top it off, it looks like someone's taken a fountain pen and flicked white ink all over them. Their plumage isn't the only beautiful thing about them, though. Sometimes you can uh, just stumble on them. In Norwich, for instance, I was waiting for the train one evening and above the station I suddenly saw three or 4,000 starlings flying over my head, which was um, really quite magical. Rob Robinson from the British Trust of Ornithology. Murmurations occur just before dark and the starlings have been out in the fields. They've been foraging probably on leather jackets or sort of earthworms. And leather jackets? Leather, leather jackets, which are baby crane flies. Okay, not um, the item of clothing you wear then. Not the item of clothing that you wear, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so they've been, they've been foraging hard, hard all day and basically at night they gather together in big roosts. Uh, some of these roosts can be 10, 20, 50,000 birds or um, sometimes even larger. And when you get all of these birds flying up and down together, it can be quite a spectacle. Mm. 
Mm. Although they do flock on mass, these beds are actually declining. Yes, they have. They they have been in terrible trouble over the last twenty five years. They've declined by uh, something like eighty or ninety percent over the last twenty five years. Eighty or ninety percent is a frightening rate of decline. But why is this happening? A recent report found drowning as a mysterious cause of mass mortality among starlings. Drowning is an unusual cause of death, as Becky Lawson from the Zoological Society of London explained. No, drowning's certainly not a common cause of death in wild birds, but it, it certainly has been recorded, in particular in birds of prey. So why have starlings been drowning? Becky did a post-mortem to see if there are any signs of toxins, viruses or parasites that might have caused them to become confused or extra thirsty. So uh, when we undertake a post-mortem, we take a systematic approach, we examine each of the body systems in turn, we look at them with the naked eye and we also take tissues and look at them under the microscope. And in a suspected drowning... What would you be looking for? Drownings are really quite a challenging diagnosis to make, um, particularly when we're dealing with wild animals, when we're not able to examine them very soon after these events have occurred. So it's a process of elimination, trying to look at all the findings together and exclude suggestions of important infectious disease or toxins and If none of those are present, as was the case here, we think that the evidence points to them having drowned. So there wasn't any evidence of anything in their blood or on the slides in their cells that suggested it could have been poison that had made them drown? We found no evidence of presence of any of the pesticides that were screened for. And no virus either? No, no viruses. So what could have caused these birds to drown? Well, we think the cause is most likely related to the behaviour of starlings. When, when we think of them, we often imagine them in groups. And so if they were to enter a body of water together as a group, that might be the simple explanation of why they drown in multiple numbers. Um, and second, it's most commonly involved youngsters, juvenile birds. And so there's probably an element of, of juvenile inexperience in identifying these water hazards. Are the numbers of these starlings drowning significant enough to be causing their decline? No, I don't think so. If the numbers aren't high enough to be causing the starling decline, why are they declining? Rob Robinson again. I think there's a, there's a number of reasons for that, and I think they sort of fall into two main groups. Um, many starlings are foraging in farmland habitats, And there have been sort of large-scale changes in farming practice over the last 20 to 30 years, so there's um, less foraging habitat for the starlings. And then I think also there are things going on in towns and cities, and there's a couple of things going on there, one of which is in terms of people developing gardens and not sort of leaving the the, the sort of the weedy corners. And then the other thing is starlings are nesting holes, they're cavity nesters, and traditionally they would have nested under the eaves of houses or in barns, and obviously um, people uh, prefer not to have birds sort of scrubbling around in their loft spaces, so they're blocking up the eaves and putting in plastic um, soffits, so basically the starlings have been deprived of nesting opportunities as well. Given that it's so many factors, how do you go about tackling that? The BTO has been working quite hard to 
look at ways of influencing agricultural policy, but I think practically people can do simple things by putting up um, nest boxes for starlings. And then you get to enjoy their antics without uh, being disturbed at night. Your own private display. Indeed. Beautiful birds. Let's hope we can save them. Rob Robinson and before him, Becky Lawson. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Connie Orbach, and with Chris Smith. Last week marked 100 years since Einstein's theory of general relativity was first announced. This proposed that gravity occurs because massive objects like stars and planets deform the fabric of space, something called space-time, and this deformation draws bodies together and explains why Newton's apple fell on his head. One of the other predictions of Einstein's theory, though, is that gravity should ripple through the fabric of space at the speed of light, producing gravitational waves. And this week, the European Space Agency launched the first phase of a mission called ELISA, in which, ultimately, several spacecraft out in deep space will bounce a light beam between themselves to spot any gravitational waves that come through. Glasgow University's Harry Ward is one of the mission scientists. Gravitational waves are a byproduct of Einstein's theory almost exactly 100 years ago when he explained that gravity is not a magical force, it's a manifestation that matter curves space-time and the curvature can change and the changes can propagate away from a source uh, and that's what we call gravitational waves and we want to detect those because it will provide a new window in the universe, a new way of looking at astronomical events. And the way the gravity waves affect uh, you or me or anything is that they stretch and squeeze us by fortunately an infinitesimal amount, but nonetheless an amount that we hope will be detectable. And uh, the way we plan to do it is to measure between separated items, typically mirrors, because we're using laser light to do it, and we monitor their separation, looking for tiny, tiny changes. Bouncing between the mirrors is what, a beam of light? A beam of laser light, And you're able to detect, obviously, if if a gravity wave comes through and it squeezes the space a little bit or stretches the space a little bit, then the the light will take a bit longer or a bit bit less time to go between the two and therefore its its colour, its wavelength, is going to change very subtly. That's right, provided you've got some reference against which to make that measurement. And so in all of the experiments that have been envisaged to date, we typically do that by having two arms, two paths along which we make measurements and we orient them at right angles to each other because it turns out that the gravity wave affects two things at right angles to each other And so the two arms give us a natural way in which we compare one arm with the other arm. Now, this is the longer term project, isn't it? Your initial work is going to inform how that happens. So what are you actually putting into space now and what's that going to do? The the longer term project is a thing called ELISA, which would have three spacecraft forming these two arms or maybe even three arms if we complete the triangle. But the challenge is in the technology. I mean, it's a daring thing to try to do. And so it's a proof of principle. It uh, is designed to allay risk and to demonstrate to all of us that uh, we have the technology under control. I sound like an online sales rep when I ask, well, what's in the box then? Essentially, two reflecting masses which float completely freely. They look beautiful, actually. They're, they're gold platinum cubes. And these, in principle, float freely within a spacecraft. And the laser beams propagate to and from these proof masses and make the measurement. Will the test device, Pathfinder device, actually have the capacity to do science? Or will it just prove that you can stably mount this system in space? 
its prime target is technology demonstration. It's not science. It was never sold as being a science mission. And remember, it's not just a technology demonstrator for for something like ELISA. There's a growing interest in making these kind of sensitive measurements of interaction of gravitational fields with masses much more locally. I mean, we have missions that do climate research by monitoring the gravity perturbations of the Earth. And so the technology that's demonstrated for this mission has wider applicability than just for pure science. Now, say it does come off. We hope it will. What will it mean to science if, if we actually do detect these gravity waves going through space? Well, I actually hate the word detect because that sounds as though it's a, it's a one thing and then it's over. Genuinely, this is, this is new astronomy, plus also you know, tests of um, some of the remaining Einsteinian predictions about general relativity. It allows us to see right at, to the heart of some of the most extreme events that you could ever imagine in the universe, you know, the, the millions of solar mass black holes that we know that exist at the centres of galaxies, things that we couldn't realistically ever hope to to see in through the electromagnetic observations. So gravity waves allow, if we can observe them, uh, is, is really a tool for seeing to the heart of essentially the force that shapes the evolution of our universe. Harry Ward from Glasgow University. If you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right? Because they have more cells. But that isn't the case. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're unravelling Pito's paradox. Animals like elephants have many more cells than humans and they live longer, yet they hardly ever get cancer. But why? Plus, revolutions in genetics and a magical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Connie Orbeck. Now, on to the main part of the show, how technology is changing the world of music. In 2014, for the first time, online audio streaming services made more money than sales of CDs, and this trend is continuing. But it's not just the distribution of music that is changing. How musicians make music is also evolving rapidly. Recently, the iconic Abbey Road Studios, which were made famous by the likes of Pink Floyd and the Beatles, among others, launched... Abbey Road Red. Now, this is a new incubator for music technology startups, and the project manager is John Eads. Hello, John. Hi. You better begin by first of all explaining to us what a, a technology startup incubator is. I guess incubator is actually not a bad term for it. It's uh, kind of lost a bit of meaning for me recently. But I guess you think of an incubator as somewhere where you put an egg or a newborn baby or something in the early stages of its life to to give it the best chance possible. And uh, an incubator for startups really does the same thing. It, it provides the right type of habitat for a startup to, to have the best shot at success. What sorts of people are approaching you and, and coming to take part in the incubator? People that are, like I say, in the very early stages of building a business. So some people with, with just an idea, some of them very crazy, uh, some of them more promising, and right through to people who've built a bit of a team, so up to kind of 10, 15 people. But that's all really quite quite early in, in terms of how big some of these businesses can grow. Technology and music go hand in glove and hand in hand, though they have done for years. So what's new here? I very much see it as a progression or a continuation of a progression which has been going on for a long time. And uh, Abbey Road's been around since uh, 1931. So there's 84, uh, 84 years of history there. And I'm lucky enough to have spent quite a lot of time uh, researching that history. 
And uh, what, I, what I see happening at the moment is very much just the continuation of how things have been progressing for a long time. The only difference for me really is how quickly it's moving and things are really, really accelerating in pace. And you can point to a few quite um, quite large socioeconomic changes that have, that have caused that or have, have allowed that to happen. So why have you moved back into this scene? Abbey Road was big in this area historically. Then there was a bit of a fallow period. Now you're back. Why? Some of those big economic changes um, that have, that have meant that we've played a different role in the in the change in technology over the years. And in the 50s and 60s, you couldn't go to a shop. You couldn't just buy a, a tape machine off the shelf. And uh, it was very much the the seedlings of, of the recording studio industry. Um, and EMI, the company that owned Abbey Road, built all of its own equipment. Um, as things changed, as more independent studios uh, cropped up and as independent producers uh, came along, uh, lots of independent companies started making equipment and, uh, well, competing quality and competing price. Uh, so EMI stopped producing quite so much equipment uh, through the kind of 70s, 80s period. Uh, and things have changed recently such that it's not so much the um, the big established companies that are making the best technology now or, or pioneering the best innovations. It seems to be that they're coming from either academic research or from the startup community. And so we're not now running an R&D department in the way that we used to. We're more running collaborative agreements with the people who uh, are innovating at the moment. Is uh, everyone on board with this encroachment of the new technology into the music scene or have you got some people who, you know, in the same way as regard the tea's made as a bit of a threat to the kettle? Uh, is, is, <laughs> is, is, is everyone on the same page? Uh, no, I'd be, uh, I'd be uh, kind of uh, innocent if I said they were. And I, I'm very much the kind of pioneer at Abbey Road. Um, Abbey Road still does what it's always done and uh, and does a very good job of it at large scale um, acoustic recordings. And uh, a lot of the people in, involved in that process see some of the things that I'm working on as quite threatening. And um, in some ways they are, but in some ways they're not. And for a company such as Abbey Road, the, the worst thing to do is to ignore these technologies. The best thing to do is really to get on board and embrace them. Well, good luck with that. That's John Eads, who is from the uh, Abbey Road Red. It's a new incubator for music technology startups. What John is getting at here is the tension between technology and creativity. And when we think of music, that creativity is often associated with the first sparks of a song and the initial composition of melody, beats and pitch. But could a machine do that instead? Patrick Stobbs is a musician and co-founder of Duke Deck, a new system launching soon that uses software to make music. We're a London-based startup. Uh, we are building an artificially intelligent music composer, a system that allows video creators, podcasters and any other content creators to create unique music at the touch of a button. We're not launched yet, but we're launching very, very soon. For you, we will give you uh, a little bit of a sneak preview. Fantastic. OK, can you show me how it all works? Sure. You simply come to our site, click new track uh, and select your uh, genre of music. We offer four or five genres, electronic, folk, rock, ambient. Um, then you select your mood. So let's select electronic genre, let's set, select a chilled mood. You can select your speed, you can select an exact duration. Let's just go for 27 seconds and click create. And in the next 20 seconds, our system will create a completely unique track of music based on your specifications. Hmm, electronic chilled. Not bad for 20 seconds. 
But what else could I make? Five genres, electronic, folk, rock, orchestral and ambient, and four moods. Uplifting, dark, that sounds intimidating, uh, chilled and aggressive. What do you see aggressive being used for? This has actually been a really key request from some of our users. There's a large community of people in the world who shoot videos of themselves playing computer games and they've requested slightly more hard, harsher sounding music because they think it really goes well with playing computer games. Um, So that's why we uh, created an aggressive genre. We are about to release at least 10 or 20 or so more moods. Can I try making one myself? Please do. Okay, so I want to make a whole new podcast. It's going to be about adventures in Siberia. So I think I'm going to want some folk for my adventures in Siberia. My adventures are going to be, they're going to be uplifting. And for around 20 seconds, it's just going to be a short intro. Okay, let's click and make it. And just another 20 seconds later... Nice. I can really, I can really hear my podcast developing with this. I, I've got a real picture of how it's going to work. Rustic Siberia. <laughs> so, Patrick, this seems really easy, but I'm assuming there's something a lot more complicated going on behind this all to get out so many different types of music so quickly. Can you explain to me what's going on? Correct. This sadly isn't a system that you can just throw together in a, in a week. It's taken uh, four years of hard technical development broadly speaking we have two sections to our system one is a composition section which dictates what notes should come where imagine it's writing a piece of sheet music second is a production system which takes that sheet music and uh, chooses how it should be performed Uh, it selects instruments it selects how notes should be articulated and eventually it converts the piece into an mp3 file which is then given to you doesn't it make you i don't know cry a little inside when you suggest that a computer can do what a highly trained musician could we're composers we're musicians we totally get some people's instant reaction which is like oh that's really weird why are you getting a computer to write music but i think if you dig a little deeper it quickly becomes apparent that this is going to be a really useful and hopefully exciting thing firstly composition is a really restricted practice unless you've had the really good fortune to have had a musical education or had the time to teach yourself you basically can't create nice music you can bang on a table and shriek and scream but composing a nice piece of music is really hard and most people can't do that so we think that by empowering non-musicians to create music at the touch of a button that can only be a good thing the second thing to bear in mind is the possibilities this opens up when you have a system that can create music it can necessarily do so very quickly because computers work incredibly fast and it leads to a situation where music can be composed in real time i on a second by second basis dynamically reacting to what is going on in the world so this will theoretically be able to compose music that takes into account who you are where you are what you're doing how you're feeling for example uh, say you're trying to get to sleep a system like this could theoretically take into account your physiology what's going on inside your brain and compose you the perfect 
piece of music to lull you to sleep. Do you think this is a tool that composers could use themselves in the end? We've already had um, musicians use this to create bigger and better works. Um, we've had various um, pop singers come along, create a backing track using our system, and then compose their own melody over the top of it. And that's really exciting to us as musicians. So absolutely, we want to bake in uh, a bunch more features to help um, musicians create bigger and better works of art using this using the system. Patrick Stubbs there with his new platform, Juke Deck, which launches soon. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Connie Orbach. And if you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. We're also on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. There's a Facebook page. Or there's our website, nakedscientists.com, where you can actually find full transcripts and the references to pretty much everything that's in the programme. Now, you might remember earlier on in the programme, I played you some musical clips. I'll just remind you what they sounded like. Here's the first one again. And here was the other one. Well, can you tell the difference? There is one, I can assure you. And part of that difference is because one of those two tracks was mixed and put together by a human. The other was put together by a machine. It was a system or a platform put together by Dr Josh Rice, who's the head of audio engineering at Queen Mary University of London. And he's been working on this system for some time. Um, Josh, when we say producer in music and producing tracks like that, what do we actually mean? Typically, with uh, any audio production task, there's lots of different sound sources coming in. And so the role of the producer is to combine those sources in such a way that it produces a nice, clean blend of all of the sounds, while at the same time ensuring that everything can be heard and heard intelligibly. So what the producer does is record all of the content and mix it together, applying a variety of effects to adjust the levels and adjust the, the relative strengths of each of the frequencies and the loudness ranges of all of the sources. And that's what you've done with those two sample tracks that we played just now. Yeah, so it's a team of researchers working with me and essentially they've developed uh, a variety of different algorithms or software techniques that will listen to all of the incoming content and the interaction between all of these different sound sources and make judgment calls of how to apply the effects on each of them. Now the pieces I played you, you don't know which order I played them in. What order do you think I played them in? Which do you think was the human and which do you think was the machine? Yeah, so I thought I knew and now I'm not so sure. I think it was the uh, the second one that was the machine and the first one the, the human. Actually, you're the wrong way around. So your system must be really very good because it's even fooling you. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, that surprises me a bit. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the goal of our system, to do something sufficient quality that it can be used in situations where uh, a mix can't be done or can't be done quick enough or to provide very good presets for someone to, to enhance even further. One thing that this system won't do, though, is to bring to the party the creativity, the spontaneity and the thinking outside the box that a really very good producer would. This is a computer programme which means it follows rules. That's exactly right. Although we have looked at uh, ways in which those rules can continue to learn and adapt. But 
in when we've evaluated the system, we've often found that uh, different components will consistently yield a pretty good mix of the content, whereas the human might uh, create an amazing mix or one that some people love and some people hate. And so it's all these artistic and creative decisions that we're not doing, but we are able to deal with the technical aspects. And some of those technical aspects, because we can do all of this processing, we might be able to do even better than a human. I mean, we were asking John this earlier with respect to how the traditionalists at Abbey Road are receiving the incursion of new technology into their domain. How is this going down with the pros? If you if you show a pro producer your platform, invite them to play with it, how do they react? All right, yeah, John and I have had discussions about this before. So as an example... There was uh, a write-up about this work in New Scientist a little while back, and in the online discussion forum about it, one well-known record producer, who of course I'm not going to mention, said a complete waste of time and money. And another one wrote, uh, I can't believe you even thought this rubbish worth printing. So some producers do feel threatened by this, uh, like happens with any disruptive innovative innovation technology. But another one who's won several Grammys for his work said, am I in favor of a technology that might one day put me out of business? Yes, I am, as long as it's done well. Josh, thank you very much. That's uh, Dr. Josh Rice. He's from Queen Mary University of London. So far, we've heard how technology can influence the creative process. But what about the world of live music? How are artists integrating technology into their acts? One musician, Imogen Heap, has been collaborating with textile designers, engineers and computer scientists on a project called Mimu Gloves. Adam Stark is one of the team. I went to see him. Hi, is that Adam? Yeah, yeah, come on, shut. My name's Adam Stark and I am a software developer and I've been working on the Mimu Gloves now for about four years, trying to turn all the rich data we get about your hand into music. At the moment, if you want to make electronic music, you're normally presented with uh, a MIDI keyboard or some buttons or knobs or faders, but they're not very expressive ways of performing electronic music. The, the thing that's really, really expressive about people more than almost anything is their hands. And so we wanted to make a device that captures the expressiveness of your hands and uses that as a controller for making electronic music. I feel like the best way to explain this is if you if you let me have a go. Is that possible? Sure, I'll talk you through it. Okay, fantastic. What do we need to do first? So the first thing, we need to put the gloves on and then we need to calibrate them for your hands because everyone's hands are different. The gloves are black, thin and feel very fragile. But actually, they're incredibly sturdy and designed specifically to be strong, flexible and unobtrusive. They're wireless and even fingerless, so you can play other instruments whilst you wear them. But most importantly, they're covered in electronics. There are either one or two bend sensors, depending on the finger. So this detects the, the bend of your knuckles. Okay. So if you, if you just feel the end of your fingers, you'll feel something hard there. There's like a kind of ribbon running down to yeah. my fingers, and that's a flex bend sensor? Yeah, that's a bend sensor. This part here, this, uh, this little board um, on the wrist, detects the orientation of your hands. So it detects sort of the roll of your wrist, and then if you move your wrist up and down or from left to right... And that's all of the sensors on the glove? Um, so for, in terms of the information, like going into the glove, those are the two things. So the bend of your fingers and the orientation of your wrist. But we have a couple of pieces of feedback as well. So we have an LED here, which will light up. We, we can program that to, to tell you different things about the software. So you can really don't have to look at the screen. 
After a bit more fiddling to get the gloves in place, it was time to configure the software to my hand. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to press calibrate, and you're just going to move your, your hand open and close and make sure you're moving all of your fingers, including your thumb, from fully bent to Okay, fully so open. clench them like a fist and then, yeah. and then open them back out. Once the software knew the extent of the movement in my hand, we could program it to gestures. So Adam got me to make a few different movements, like a fist or a pointed finger, and the software remembered them, so it could later match them to particular musical commands. So what I've set up here is um, a way for you to play chords using the gloves. If you make a fist with your right hand, that will play a, a certain chord, and if you let go, it will stop. Okay. Now if you move to a different direction, make a fist, it will play a different chord. And so this one out there, it should be as well. <gasps> oh, this is so exciting. So I'm moving my hand in front of me, um, above my head, uh, to the side, and Put down. One down. Yeah. There should be one over this side as well. That's to the oh, left. to my left as opposed to So now right. if you, you make this one again in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now move the, on your left hand. Um, so what, the right hand here is now making a fist. So on the left hand, if you roll your wrist while you make the, the sound, you can control the, the tone of it there. Wow, I have so much power in my hands right now. Oh! Yeah. I had so much fun playing with the gloves. I can't imagine what someone with actual musical abilities might be able to do. Of course, I was far too distracted to manage an actual interview. So, sadly, the time came when I had to take the gloves off and get back to work. We allow you to combine together um, different movements. You might say, if I'm making a fist and I'm rolling my wrist from, from left to right, that particular movement I'm going to connect to a certain musical control parameter. Um, so when I say that, what I mean is we connect it to some piece of music software. Uh, maybe it's the volume fade or maybe it's the panning around the room or it's the amount of reverb. And so they were originally a tool for Imogen, but... You have many other people using these gloves as well, is that right? That's right. Um, we realised that there was something really, really powerful in these gloves and that, that every time we gave them to somebody different to put them on, they used them in a completely different way and we were really interested in how other people might use them. And So we've now got about 20 different uh, users around the world and they're using it for all kinds of different things. So we've got uh, film composers, there's Ariana Grande, who's a sort of pop star, and we've got a charity called Drake Music who work with musicians with disabilities who are kind of barriers to them making uh, music. So they use technology to try and break down those barriers. And uh, we're working with a musician called Chris Halpin and he's been uh, making huge use of the gloves and gigging all over the place. He has a cerebral palsy and he's had a, a journey through dealing with his condition and trying to find ways around his condition to make music. And, and I think the gloves for him have been uh, somewhat of an emancipation. And there's a, there's a lot of performance involved in wearing these gloves. You really have to be willing to throw your hands around and, and play with it. So I guess it's, there's only a certain type of performer that would be happy doing this as well. I think that's a, that's a really good question. I'm a, I'm a guitarist and I play in a, in a band where normally you kind of tend to look at your guitar pedals and that kind of thing. And suddenly you're not looking at your, top, your guitar pedals, you're looking up at the audience and you're moving your hands around and it's, it's a very different experience and um, sometimes I really love it and sometimes I feel a bit like a lemon. <laughs> but, um, that, but yeah, it does take a certain personality, but it does communicate to people better, I think, than almost anything else. I'm not sure that I'd feel comfortable flailing my arms around on stage, but maybe that's why I'm not a performer. 
that and the whole musical ability thing. But with these gloves, there seems little doubt that technology and creativity are hand in hand. Connie was there speaking with Adam Stark with his Mimu gloves. Now, we've talked about how technology is changing music, but what about the music industry? Downloading and streaming have led to a huge drop in the amount of money a musician can expect to make from album sales. But is this an opportunity or is it actually bad news? Well, Nate Langson is a technology journalist at Bloomberg. So, Nate, how has streaming and and digital technology impacted on the music industry thus far? Well, I'll start with the second one first. Digital technology changed things in that it allowed people to buy and download individual songs and albums rather than having to go out and physically buy the CD. What streaming has done is change the business model once again to mean that instead of having to purchase individual albums or songs, you're now simply paying for access to the entire history of recorded music or at least available recorded music. And that's meant that while there's a predictable, steady stream of revenue and money coming in, there is less incentive for people to go out and buy something just because it's new and you've heard it somewhere on the radio or on television. Cynics would say that in the good old days, what artists tended to do was to make you buy an album uh, by putting one or two choice morsel songs on there and then a whole load of other stuff that could in some cases be described as a bit of padding. Um, Whereas with streaming and with download technology, you listen to what you want to and you pay for what you want to. Yes, it's it's put the access um, into the hands of the users because now they don't need to go out and pay £10 to see how much filler there is on an album. They can just sample the, the songs. And um, and the other side of it is that it's, it's not just necessarily the new stuff that people are listening to and able to sample. If they're listening to an, uh, a recording that someone says is heavily influenced by something that came four decades before, um, then they can go and listen to the thing that was four decades earlier and, and get a sense for that. And, and I think that generally is a, is a great thing for music and kind of democratises the history of all recorded music. Can you give us some idea of the scale of the impact that this has had in, in money terms on producers, record companies and artists? people are migrating to paying for streaming services and that has meant that in some parts of the world the money that is being made from streaming has exceeded the money made from sales of downloads which has in itself um, exceeded the sales made from cds now for, for a long time the problem is how that money then gets distributed because there are many stories of songwriters saying that they earn very very little from their recordings and that you can stream a song or have a song streamed millions of times and, and make only a few thousand pounds or dollars from it, even from a very top performing artist. The issue is that the record labels are not necessarily distributing the money made from streaming services to artists in a way that the artists consider fair. And the knock-on effect there means that you get artists saying, we don't want our stuff on streaming services because we don't make enough money from it. Actually, it has been shown in some areas that money is being made off their music. It's just that they're not receiving it because that side of the business world has not sorted itself out quite quickly enough. I suppose it's fair to say that in the same way that the internet has disrupted multiple business models, newspaper publishing, book publishing, and so on, it's broken the business model that had existed for decades and supported and sustained the music industry where there was a well-established system of someone recorded your music, they helped you distribute it, they made money, you made money, and 
Not everyone was a winner, but it worked. Now we've got the system where, on the one hand, there's the internet being a great leveller. It gives opportunities to people who would never have those opportunities normally. They get visibility to a vast audience, potentially, which they couldn't have done before. But at the same time, in doing so, they've removed and destroyed the very thing that incentivised people to get into the industry in some respects, a financial reward, in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the the other thing that's happened in a positive way is that there are now more places for music to appear. We have the world of video games and we have apps that are using recorded music in them. And it's given people another way to consume music and, and therefore another way for artists to make money off their music. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a squeeze box. It's a boom and bust model that we're seeing the music industry go through. It's just that not all parts of the music industry have boomed or busted at exactly the same point. Had they have done, that would have been a lot better for everyone, possibly. Nate Langston, and before him, Adam Stark, Josh Rice, Patrick Stobbs and John Eads. And finally, it's time for Question of the Week. Felicity Bedford has been taking a cold, hard look at Kevin's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. If someone transported polar bears to Antarctica, would they thrive? At first glance, the Arctic and Antarctic have very similar environments. I needed someone with first-hand experience of Antarctica to help me answer this question. Dr Ian Staniland from the British Antarctic Survey told me why we might want to move polar bears in the first place. Starving polar bears desperately clinging to lumps of melting ice is an image that most people relate to regarding global warming and the threats to wildlife. And given their iconic status, it has even been suggested that we could save the polar bear by translocating them to the Antarctic. But would they be more successful hunting at the South Pole? Let's drop them in and find out. Polar bears would do very well if transplanted into the Antarctic, well, at least for a few years. From a food point of view, it'd be polar bear heaven. In the Arctic, the seals and other potential prey species have evolved lifestyles that minimise their risk of being eaten by polar bears. But in contrast, larger Antarctic animals such as seals and penguins have evolved without this risk of being eaten. Because of this, the penguins are typically quite bold and inquisitive and will often approach you to have a look. And seals in the Antarctic range in behaviour from total indifference to, to outright aggression. For example, Antarctic fur seals have a reputation for chasing and trying to bite people. And whilst this is great for tourism and researchers, well, except for getting bitten, obviously, it would make Antarctic wildlife the equivalent of an all-you-can-eat buffet as far as polar bears are concerned. The most obvious effect of putting polar bears into the Antarctic would be a catastrophic decline in the seal and penguin populations and some very fat and happy bears. So far so good for the polar bears. Although news isn't so good for the penguins. Are there any other benefits for polar bears in Antarctica? Given that most of the industrialised nations are in the Northern Hemisphere and are encircling the Arctic, it's no surprise that polar bears are basically being poisoned by their food. The remoteness of Antarctica and its greater separation from these sources of pollution means that whilst such toxins are found in the environment, the levels are currently much less significant. Plenty of food and less pollution. This all sounds too good to be true. But it's not all good news for the polar bears. There are also several less obvious factors that come into play. There would be many unknowns, such as the risk of the bears of exposure to new diseases, and then what would happen when the bears have eaten all the seals and penguins. History teaches us that animal translocations have often have unpredictable results, and so it's probably best that polar bears and penguins only meet on badly designed Christmas cards. Thanks, Ian. 
I'm sure all penguin lovers will agree the solution to polar bear conservation lies in protecting their Arctic habitat, not moving them south. Next week, we'll be answering Sterling's question. What causes sleepwalking and what can be done to prevent it? I wouldn't mind if I could answer emails in my sleep. That would double my productivity. But do you have a solution to sleepwalking? Send your suggestions to chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that brings us to the end for this week. Thank you very much to Connie for the production. Next week, we're going to be digging into why our soils need saving. Apparently, making three centimetres of topsoil takes a thousand years, but present rates of soil loss mean we may have no soil left within 60 years. We'll find out why. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by Rolls-Royce, the EPSRC and the SDFC. I'm Chris Smith, and thanks to you at home for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.